Let the youth band know one more time how much we appreciate them. Thank you. If you would be seated and grab your Bibles, and we're going to be back in uh, Matthew chapter 26 again tonight as we continue our journey through Jesus' last 24 hours, the 24 hours leading up to his crucifixion. Um, normally, this Friday night, you'd come together and it'd be the Good Friday service, but because we're systematically working through these events in the last 24 hours, tonight we find ourselves at Jesus' trial. Tomorrow night, we'll find ourselves at the crucifixion, and then Sunday morning, we'll be celebrating his resurrection in the 930 service. I recently heard of a man that was uh, pulled over for speeding, and as the officer approached the driver's side of the vehicle, he Noticed the man rolled down his window very politely, and he said, Sir, I need to see your driver's license and your registration. Well, immediately the man began to beg for leniency. He said, Officer, you've got to understand, I've got a lot of tickets on my record, and I've been told if I get one more ticket that my license is going to be revoked. If my license is revoked, I'm not going to have the opportunity to drive to work. If I can't drive to work, I'm not going to be able to take care of my family. Is there any way whatsoever that you could just give me a warning? Well, he had been speeding quite heftily, and... Rather sternly, but still politely, the officer said, I need to see your driver's license and your registration. And about that time, the gentleman said, I've got to tell you the truth, officer, I, I don't have a driver's license. And I don't think I have a registration for this car. But he caught himself right in the middle of that and he said, no, you know what? I think I did see the registration in the glove compartment when I was putting my pistol in there. And so naturally, the officer stepped right back and he places his hand on his service weapon and he said, I'm sorry, did you say... You have a pistol in the glove compartment? And he said, well, yes, sir. After I robbed that bank and I threw all the money in the trunk, I had to put the pistol somewhere for safekeeping. Well, no, as you can imagine, the officer now has his gun fully drawn and he tells the man, put your hands on the steering wheel and do not move. And he immediately calls for backup. Man, instantaneously, there are sirens going off and there are lights flashing and one of the SWAT teams shows up and out comes the SWAT team commander and he comes to the passenger side of the vehicle and noticing that the man still had his hands on the, dry, on the, uh, on the steering wheel, he gradually opens the door and he said, sir, what is your name? And the man said, well, officer, if you'll allow me, I'll reach into my back pocket and I'll get my billfold and I'll give you my driver's license. So he says, okay, so very carefully he does that and the man takes the driver's license and said, well, I understand you've stolen this car and you don't have any registration. And he said, I don't know who shared that with you. My driver's license will show you that the registration in my glove compartment is the same person. So very carefully, the, the officer opens the glove compartment and he looks and underneath a stack of wet wipes for babies and McDonald's napkins and those kind of things, he finds the registration, he gets it out and compares. And sure enough, the driver's license and the registration, they say the same name, same address, same everything. So he says, well, keep your hands on the, the steering wheel. And he reaches over and he takes out the keys from the ignition. And he walks around to the back of the car and he opens the trunk and he looks in. And all that is in there is a spare tire and a bunch of old golf clubs. He's really confused at this time. So he shuts the trunk and he walks back around to that officer that has his weapon drawn. And he's sitting there looking at the man with his hands on the steering wheel. And he said, officer, I don't understand. We responded to an SOS that you put out that we have a... A gentleman that has stolen a car, robbed a bank, has a pistol in his glove compartment. And about that time, the man cries out, Yeah, and I bet he told you I was speeding too, didn't he? <laughs> Matthew chapter 26 is the place that we're going to start tonight as we begin to look at these last 24 hours. And there's a reason why I share that story with you tonight. And that reason is simply this. There's no doubt there's many of us here tonight that we can relate to that officer. 
going through our daily life, going through what God has put upon our heart to do, doing our best to just serve the way that God has called us to serve. Someone has brought up a false accusation against us. Someone has possibly just as a result of us doing what is right and them not doing what is right has decided to somehow slur our reputation or to use something that we've said and to twist it in a way that causes us not to be able to truly be represented at or in a way that we know that we truly are at at, at heart. I in no way say this flippantly and I in no way am dismissing what you've gone through in your life, but I would submit to you tonight, no matter how atrocious the slander or atrocious the treatment that you've received for something that you did not do or something you did not say, it pales in comparison to what we're going to read tonight about what happened to Jesus Christ as he was falsely represented and he was slandered and he was presented to others in a fashion that just was not who he was. As a matter of fact, it's so unfair that there has been study by those that are much better versed in judicial law than myself that one great writer said this, a judicial expert said, the trial of Jesus Christ of Nazareth represents the darkest day in the history of jurisprudence. The man that was tried, convicted and sentenced to death was the only perfect and completely innocent person who ever lived. Yet he was sentenced to the most painful form of capital punishment ever devised. So as we've been taking this journey and I've tried to give you tick marks of where we are, we find ourselves about 2 a.m. on the wee hours of Friday morning. Jesus has now been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has planted that kiss upon him and continued going through with his charade of being a friend of Jesus. And now Jesus being arrested has been taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. And according to John chapter 18, what you would find is that the first stop that they make with Jesus is at Annas's house. Doesn't make sense. Annas, he's not the high priest, but in essence, he really is. Annas was the high priest, and for the last five terms, his sons have served as the high priest, and now his son in law is serving as the high priest. So, in essence, Annas is the political and religious leader for the Jews. He is the most influential with those that serve on what we call. The Israeli prime, or excuse me, Supreme Court known as the Sanhedrin. And he, he brings great weight. And no doubt he's the mastermind behind this slandering of Jesus and the desire to rid him from this earth. And so in Matthew chapter 26 and 57, we find after that Annas has had no luck in breaking Jesus down. In Matthew 26 and verse 7, it says those who had seized him, which is also the ones that had taken him to Annas's house, are now leading him away from there to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. Again, this tribunal that we find are the 70 members that make up the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, if you will. I kind of find it ironic, and maybe you pick up on that. We're at 2 o'clock in the morning, possibly getting close to the 3 o'clock time, and suddenly all 70 of the Supreme Court justices find themselves at Caiaphas's house in total legal regalia, and they are ready to conduct court. I think we've got a predetermined, trumped-up kangaroo court that's now in session. It's pretty obvious that's what's taking place. This prearranged plot is unfolding before us. There's other details as you take the Gospels and you put them together and you study and make sure that we stay chronologically in place. 
There's many other details that speak to this kangaroo court that's presiding over Jesus. Luke 22 tells us that the first trial was held at Caiaphas's house. The Sanhedrin were only to meet in their judicial chambers called the Hall of Judgment. What they were doing by holding court at Caiaphas's house and not at the Hall of Judgment, in essence, what they were doing was this past Wednesday when our eight Supreme Court justices came together to review the Zubik versus Burwell case, which is a religious organization holding that the Affordable Care Act should not force them to buy contraceptions for employees of which they don't have that conviction that they should provide them. It's a very important case in our judicial system. And it would kind of be what's going on at Caiaphas' houses would be like our eight Supreme Court justices in the middle of beginning that dialogue and hearing that case said, hey, can we just pause for a moment? There is a subway that's right around the corner down by the Capitol building. Let's just go to the subway and hold court tonight. That's what's happening when Jesus is being tried here at Caiaphas' house. It's illegal. It's grounds for dismissal. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 59 goes on to tell us that the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. Here we see two grievous atrocities. Number one, the Supreme Court justices were serving as prosecuting attorneys. That's not the Supreme Court's job. The Jewish people are very proud of the fact that they are very fair and they are very just in their dealing. And any time that there was a dispute as to what should happen, you came to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin was to be unbiased. They were to weigh the facts. They were not to bring any accusations. And here it is happening. Illegal grounds for dismissal. The second thing we notice in verse 59 is that for a person to be put on trial, there had to be a clear statement of the accusation. There had to be witnesses produced that could support the criminal indictment that has been levied against them and that would testify against the defendant separately after being sequestered so that they could not compare testimony while they were giving it. But yet in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 60, it says, The prosecuting attorneys who were supposed to be the unbiased members of the Supreme Court, they couldn't find any witnesses, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, after a period of time, finally, two really true witnesses show up and the two of them begin to testify in the same location at the same time about the crimes that Jesus has committed. Illegal grounds for dismissal. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 62 goes on to say the high priest stood up and said to him after these false witnesses together levy the charges. The high priest stood up and said to him, Jesus, do you not answer this? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Any lawyer knows, especially a Supreme Court justice, they know that the defendant has a right to cross-examination of the witnesses to truly understand what they're saying. And Jesus is not given this privilege. It's illegal. Case dismissed. Verse 63 of Matthew 26. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ. Underline that. If you got your Bibles tonight, underline this is very important about what we're going to see as we go later on in, this, in our story tonight. 
Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, he tears his robe and he says he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered, he deserves death. Illegal grounds for dismissal. The Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, fully understood that after that, the witnesses appeared and after they testified in a capital punishment case as now being referred to them in the case of Jesus. That they were not to take action or to determine whether guilt was found until at least one day after they've had time to go away and to ponder the evidence in their own mind. And then when they came back together, the vote was to happen one person at the time, starting with the most junior member of the Sanhedrin and then going up to the high priest so that the junior members would not be influenced by the more uh, 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 authoritative figures on the Supreme Court. The junior members voted first and then it worked its way up to the high priest. Illegal. Case. Dismissed. If that isn't enough. After hearing the testimony in this capital case. Hearing exactly what these false testimonies consist of. If that wasn't enough that they skipped through the protocol of how they were to vote, we've got this high priest that's leading the charge of Jesus's crucifixion. And that definitely was not his role and his position, especially when you're getting influenced by your father-in-law, which really isn't the high priest to begin with. Is it any wonder in light of that that? A knowledgeable judicial expert would say Jesus's trial represented the most unjust, irresponsible, fallacious and unfounded verdict in the history of jurisprudence. Let's pick up the story, Matthew, chapter 27, and verse one. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Now, the Sanhedrin did not have the right to put Jesus to death. They could announce that's what they wanted to do. But because they were under the authority of the Roman government, only the governor of the region could announce whether or not capital punishment could be enforced. He had the right to sentence it. He had the right to veto it. He had the power of the next decision. Do you hear me tonight? The Sanhedrin could announce the death penalty, but they could not take action on the death penalty. They could not take Jesus's life until one individual, the governor, Pilate, gave them the okay. Luke chapter 23 and verse 2 says, when they appeared before Pilate, as we're putting these gospel accounts together, that they, the high priests and the scribes and those that comprised the Sanhedrin, that they began to accuse Jesus, saying, 
We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. Here we see another example of this kangaroo court. Less than an hour earlier, they had accused him and condemned him of blasphemy. And now an hour later, they're bringing him before the governor and they're not even accusing him of the same things that he was on trial for in the trial that was not admissible in court. So Pilate begins his examination because if he's going to pronounce death on an individual, he wants to know what's going on. Verse 20, verse 11 of chapter 27, it says, Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor questioned him, saying, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Now, when we piece all of this together and we piece, we, we piece these gospel accounts together and we see all the different trials, we understand that Jesus stood six different trials after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was condemned to be crucified. Six different times, six different trials. And three of these trials, three of these questioning periods, three of the times that this examination is really taken about him, three of those six times it's conducted by Pilate, the governor. Why? Because he's had the one to announce the verdict. Listen to Pilate's response after each examination. Luke chapter 23 and verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23 and verse 14. And he said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserves death that has been done by him. The third time, Luke 23, verse 22. And he said to them the third time, why? Why do you want this guy crucified? Why? Why capital punishment? Why? What evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him, but I will not crucify him. I'll flog him, but I'm not going to send him to be crucified. I'm going to release him. Do you hear that tonight? Pilate could find no fault in Jesus Christ. Pilate not only believed that Jesus was innocent of all of these charges, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent of all of these charges. So why was Jesus crucified? I know, I know, I know, because that's what God planned and that's what he was supposed to do. And that's why he came to the earth. Let's just wash over everything. Yes. In the grand scope of things, that's exactly why he was crucified. But why are we doing this study on the last 24 hours? Because for far too long, we've had the historical understanding of what happened at Easter, but we've not had application of that truth. We've not applied it. We talk about it. We, we can chronologically go through things and we walk out the door at the end of Easter and we don't act any different than we did before we came in. Our convictions are not changed. Our passion for the lost is not anymore. Humanly speaking, I am not dismissing why Jesus Christ came to this earth, but humanly speaking, the reason that Jesus was crucified, humanly speaking, is because one man compromised. 
Do you hear me tonight? A man that was innocent, a man that did not deserve death, a man that had done nothing wrong. Was killed via capital punishment because one man compromised. I see two valuable lessons in this story that I pieced together for you tonight that I hope that we all will extract and take with us when it comes into the area of compromising. Begin reading with me in Matthew chapter 27. Let's start in verse 15 and let's walk through all the way to verse 26 and make sure we understand what's happening here. Verse 15 of chapter 27 says, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Do you remember what I had you underline a few moments ago? What did the high priest ask Jesus? Do you say that you are the Christ? And Pilate, having examined him, Pilate, having been in Jerusalem during the triumphal entry, Pilate, understanding the same people that now stood before him are the same people that were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Messiah, Christ, save our nation. Gives them a little jab, doesn't he? This is the Messiah that you've been waiting on. This is the one that I keep hearing you teach about and call out for in the temple when I walk by and I go by in my processions. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus who is the Messiah? For he knew that because of envy that they had handed him over. He knew this was a kangaroo court. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message to him saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they said, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was about to start. See, he was already in hot waters with upper management. He had already mishandled a riot that had happened in Samaria. And as a result, he was on a real short lease with the emperor. And if he messed this one up, his 401k was gone. If he messed this one up, there was no chance of him getting that next promotion. What do y'all want me to do with this Jesus? I've examined him and there's nothing wrong with him. I've examined him. My my conviction is he is the Messiah. I've examined him and he absolutely 100% is a sinless person from what y'all are telling me. 
but I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want anything to really get out of hand here. So y'all tell me, crowd, culture, what do y'all want me to do with Jesus? When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas to them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. I see two lessons in this text tonight when it comes to the area of compromise. Number one, compromise is wrong if it requires you to defy your convictions. Compromise is wrong if it requires you to defy your convictions. There's no doubt, as we've read through this tonight, that Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent. There's no doubt whatsoever that he is afraid of the crowd and he's afraid of a riot and he's afraid of his future if he stands on what is absolute truth. Gandhi once said, a no uttered from deepest conviction is better than a yes merely uttered to please or what is worse, to avoid trouble. Listen to it again. A no uttered from deepest conviction is better than a yes merely uttered to please or what is worse. To avoid trouble. What I see in this is that convictions are like an anchor. That stabilized us when we find ourselves in the middle of a storm. Our convictions, our pre-decided convictions based on truth, based on observation, based on the studying of God's word. Our convictions are what stabilize us in the midst or in the middle of a storm. I want to speak to our students for just a few moments. If you're a junior high student, if you're a high school student, if you're a college student, I want you to pay very close attention to me right now. Mamas and daddies, I want you to pay attention to me right now. Because I'm going to ask you to have conversations with your kids. Guys, listen, our convictions are the anchors that keeps us stable when we face storms in our culture. The best thing that you could do tonight is to take God's word, to study God's word, and to determine, starting tonight, what your convictions will be, biblically speaking, not culturally speaking. Biblically speaking, what will be your anchors when it comes to alcohol? What will be your anchors when we ultimately legalize marijuana in all the states of our union? What will be your convictions when you find yourselves at South Padre Island on spring break weekend because all of the college students aren't going to Florida anymore because 
Florida no longer allows alcohol to be at the beaches, but South Padre does. What's going to be your convictions about premarital sex? What's going to be your conviction about going to school and living your faith and not just copying out and saying, well, we all have our crazy college years? What's going to be your conviction as our society further and further goes away from God's understanding of what biblical marriage is all about? You've got a piece of paper in front of you tonight. There's some blanks that are there. I'm going to ask you to take some of those topics that I've just mentioned, especially those topics that the crowd that you're hanging with right now are pressuring you to defy your convictions. And I'm going to ask you to write those down and I'm going to ask you to take God's word, not Pastor Galen's word. Not your friend's word, God's word. And determine what your conviction toward those things are. And parents, I'm going to ask you to get in their business. I'm going to ask you to ask them about their list. I'm going to ask you to ask them, how can I pray with you? How can I equip you? How can I journey with you in Scripture? And for some of you, you're freaked out right now, parents, because you've never opened your Bible with your children before. And somehow you think parenting is like Lucky Charms. It just magically appears. And somehow it's just going to be magically delicious at the end of 18 years, and they're going to have a passion for the love of God, and you're not instilling the love of God. I'm not going to ask you to take this list and to berate them. I'm going to ask you to take this list and join them with helping them establish biblical convictions. Because convictions, they're the anchors that stabilize us in the midst of the storms. You see, compromise, some compromise is not bad. We call it win-win situations. Sometimes we say it's good to have a paradigm shift in certain situations as long as they don't defy the convictions that we establish that are drummed up from Scripture, not from tradition, not from denominations, not from parents, but from God's holy word. Compromise is wrong if it requires you to defy your convictions. Secondly, compromise is wrong if it requires you to deny your conscience. It's wrong if it calls for you to deny your conscience. We've been reading tonight. Pilate is struggling with what to do with Jesus. Am I right? Am I right? He's struggling. John 18. Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you, Pilate. So Pilate just trusts this crowd. Pilate, just trust what we're saying. Pronounce him to have capital punishment. Allow us to kill him. Don't really get involved with the nitty gritty. Don't search out things for yourself. Just let us go ahead. Just give us permission to kill this Jesus. But Pilate can't do it. 
Pilate just can't go carte blanche into letting the crowd determine what to happen because it's ultimately on his hands what takes place. Pilate obviously has a conscience, a wall that's holding him back from making the wrong choice. Everything inside of Pilate is screaming, don't do it. Don't do it. There's nothing wrong with this guy. He's innocent. You've, you, you've investigated him at three different times. Don't get involved with him losing his life. There's been times that I haven't listened to my conscience. How about you? And when we don't listen to our conscience, we have a pretty good idea of what we're going to get at the end, don't we? It's called guilt. Guilt is the tax compromise pays to the conscience. Guilt is the payment, if you will. It's the tax compromise pays to the conscience. And the Bible says, if you don't listen to what you're being led in the right direction to do, it's a sin. Did you know that? James says, for him that knoweth to do good and doesn't do it, it's a sin. And Paul says in Romans chapter 14, if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. We're not under the law. Nope. But we have a bunch of R-rated movies at Tinseltown. We got a bunch of rappers that want to say a bunch of things in songs that really do not edify and lift up high the name of Jesus. If something doesn't feel right, your conscience is telling you this isn't right, and you do it, Paul says, it's sin. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. Keep in mind, up until this point, Pilate has said, there's nothing against Jesus that I find guilty with him. Hey, I can't find anything wrong with him. Every trial that he's gone to, it's been illegal. Not one reliable witness has been brought against him. Not one. Pilate's man, he's on the verge of letting Jesus go. On the one hand, he's got this conviction. And on one hand, he's got this conscience. In one hand, he even has the voice of his wife. Listen, Matthew 27, 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Guys, how many times have we messed up when we didn't listen to the godly influence of our wives. Man, he's got all this on one hand. What's he got on the other hand? A bunch of a crowd of people that have falsely accused Jesus, have lied about Jesus, have slandered Jesus, have broken all of the laws of their society in order to get Jesus crucified. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing but rather that a riot was starting... He took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. I give in. I compromise. I'm not going to listen to what I know is right. I'm not going to listen to the things that I've heard from others about what's right. I'm not going to listen to what God's word. I'm not. I just, well, I'm done. Y'all just do whatever you want to do. I compromise. Humanly speaking, Jesus was crucified. Because of a human's compromise. In 1983, Avianca Airlines Flight 011 
on its descent into Madrid, Spain, it crashed. It killed all 19 crew members and it killed 163 of the 174 passengers that were on board. As it was making its descent into Madrid, it bounced off of one mountain, it bounced off another mountain, and it finally crashed and totally disintegrated. When the investigators finally got on the scene and they were able to recover the black box from the cockpit, something very eerie was found on that recording. The emergency system inside of that plane could be heard saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. The pilot obviously having flown that route many, many times, understanding he had everything under control. There was nothing to worry about. Obviously, this emergency system that had been put into place was malfunctioning. He's heard saying this. Gringo, shut up. Gringo, shut up. I know what I'm doing. I've got it under control. Moments later, it bounced off of one mountain. It bounced off another mountain. It disintegrated in the valley below, killing all 19 crew members and 163 of the 174 passengers that were on the plane that day. Why? Because one man chose to compromise. Hey, daddies, husbands, are you compromising today? Do you know how many grandchildren you're going to have in your life that are going to be impacted by the decisions that you're making today? Are you hearing in your conscience? Are you hearing in your very being? Pull up. Pull up. Danger, pull up. And all you can say is, shut up, gringo. Mamas, what about you? Are you listening to that voice inside of you that says that your children are watching your attitudes, they're watching your action, they're watching how you live your life, they're watching how you interact with your husband, and you're training up the next generation? Are you setting the standard spiritually? Are you partnering with your husband to set the standard in your home of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Are there warning signs going off inside of your head and in your heart going, warning, pull up, pull up, pull up. And all you've decided to say is, shut up, gringo. How many friends, how many acquaintances, how many people have you been trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ with and because you're compromising your convictions and you're compromising your conscience are going to be impacted because you just say gringo shut up remember the reason we're studying the last 24 hours of Jesus's life is not so that we can just historically put things into context We're studying so that we can take application. We're studying so that we can examine our life the way that Pilate examined Jesus' life. 
We're trying to put things into place that what we looked at last night, we can test ourselves. And we can understand how to make adjustments. Here's what I understand. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You get all this Holy Spirit you're ever going to get at the moment of your salvation. When you take the Holy Spirit and you take Scripture and you take this conscience that God has given to us, that He's not given to animals. He's given it to His ones that were created in His image so that we will be put together in a way that we truly will make an impact in this world. What is God telling you this Good Friday that you need to put into place so that this Easter you truly have your heart prepared like you've never had before? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to ask our praise band to come back up and we're going to sing one more song tonight. Here's my heart, Lord. I'm tired of saying, shut up, gringo. I bounced off the mountain enough. I bounced off another mountain enough. I'm headed for the bottom. I'm about to crash. And I realize that warning system, that's God. And I want to pull up. You're here tonight and you're not saved. You've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. The Bible says you respond to that warning signal by confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For with the heart, a person believes resulting in salvation and with the mouth, a person confesses. With the heart, you understand this is what I need to do so that I can be in right standing with God. And with my mouth, I make this confession so that I announce, Jesus, I understand you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through you. If you've made that decision and you've found yourself away from God and the reason you're bouncing is not because you're not saved, it's because you've not been listening to the Holy Spirit, then that passage in 1 John says if we'll confess those sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it means. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. Here's my heart for salvation. Here's my heart for rededication. Wherever you are, remember, we're preparing our hearts for Easter tonight. So I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And when I say amen, I'm just going to ask you to stand to your feet. If there's any decision you need to make tonight, I'll be right down here. I'll be happy to visit with you if you just need to come pray. If you need to go to someone else and ask them to come pray with you, you're in a safe environment tonight. We're preparing our hearts for Easter this year. Don't defy your convictions. Don't don't deny your conscience tonight. Say yes to what Jesus is asking you to do. Father, we come to you in this place and we thank you for opportunities that you give us to recenter ourselves, to get back to where you're at the forefront of all that we do. And Father, for that war that's raging inside of some tonight, I pray that as they make that comparison of you and your love on one hand and the world on the other, that 
Holy Spirit, you'll not give up. But you'll continue to show them that you are the answer for what they're struggling with tonight. Thank you for opportunities like this. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.